0: question Mm -hmm. can you explain the difference between a prophet and a seer sister helen said can we explain the difference between a prophet and a seer seer s-e-e-r when we say the word seer we say it with one syllable seer but you almost could say seer because that's really what it is it's someone that sees a seer there's not a lot of difference between those two in the bible sister Helen." If I were to make a distinction, and if you have a scripture where you think there's a distinction, I can think of a few, but if there's one on your mind, talking about the prophets and the seers, before I define it, is there a particular scripture on your mind about that? No. Just Just the language. Okay. Let me make it as simple as I can. This isn't Webster's definition, nor would this be always true in every example in the Bible. But a prophet, generally speaking, can be someone that does one of two things in terms of communication. You should know exactly what this is. We've taught this, I don't know how long, through the years. What are the two ways that a prophet communicates? Foretelling, that's future. Well, foreseeing is part of the foretelling. What's the other one? Foretelling and? telling. Now, when we use the term telling, that's not necessarily a biblical definition of a prophet, but it is part of what a prophet does in the Bible. There's times that an anointing just comes on an individual and they're speaking directly as the mouthpiece of God during that time. That doesn't mean God's telling the people about future events. God may be giving some instruction for right now. There's times if you study the prophets in the Old Testament that they're giving instruction for the people right at that moment. They're not talking about the future. Now, a lot of times it blends together because you've got conditions that if the people don't do what God is telling them to do in the present, this is going to be the future result. So quite often a prophet foretells and foretells all at one time. He's telling them, this is what God says right now to you and what you need to do. If you do not, this will be the future result. But that isn't always the case. Sometimes prophets have prophecies that are already set in place. There's no stipulation to them. A warning, for example, he just says, this is what's going to happen. And then sometimes God gives instructions in a very direct way, and he doesn't necessarily talk about the future in those instructions. He says, this is what I want you to do. A prophet can do either of those roles. It's just that that term has become more similar to the word seer. The word seer is usually talking about someone who sees forward into the future. But someone might even argue they're seeing something in the present that other people aren't seeing. But I think that the primary meaning of seer would be someone that is looking forward into the future, that God is showing them something out in the future. Whereas a prophet in its biblical use is not always just someone talking about the future. It's sometimes someone that is giving a live message right at that moment from God. It's not easy in a live setting always to tell the difference between a prophet and a teacher or the gift of prophecy working and the gift of teaching working. There's times that I have seen people teach and suddenly God strikes them and a powerful statement gets made in the middle of that teaching that isn't necessarily defining something or explaining something. It's a statement right out of heaven. And there is a blending there of those two offices for a while. And it's hard to tell the difference and pull them apart sometimes. Samuel failed both. Sure he did. He was called a seer, yeah. but he was also a prophet. And most of the time, those two mean the same thing. It's just a repetitive statement. But sometimes a prophet can be representing somebody that is speaking to a current issue, not just a future one. It's just that we've turned that word into something different in our common colloquial vocabulary. When we use the word prophet, we think of somebody talking about the future. It's just become that. Everything from Nostradamus to other people that have been considered prophets in the modern sense... Everybody's thinking that's somebody talking about the future, but the Bible includes more definitions than that in terms of what a prophet does. It includes the idea of what you might call live statements from God. It doesn't mean God's voice is speaking through that person. They become a vessel just of God speaking. But I think at that moment, God is enlivening their mind to an extent where the words they're saying are God's words. They're God's words. It's not just that person's concept of God's word. Sometimes a teacher is giving you a concept of something God's already communicated. So God has communicated something in the Bible and a teacher's giving you a concept of it. If a teacher gives you a perfect explanation of something that God communicated, that still doesn't make him a prophet because that's not a live explanation. He might be getting inspired on it right then live, but he's talking about something that's already been stated. But there's times God will state something very directly and it's a prophecy. Sometimes what we call tongues and interpretation would fall under the category of prophecy. Somebody's making a statement. One example that I can think of right now, having several here from Akron, is the statement that Sister Agnes Lewis made in Akron. She had this very dynamic, prophetic Utterance, tongues, and interpretation. And there were present statements, there were future statements involved in that. Things that God was saying about right now, who He considers you to be, and what He is doing right at this moment, and what He was going to do in terms of protection for that church. That'd be an example of prophecy. We just don't always think of tongues and interpretation as prophecy. They may not be. But most of the time, I would say, if you're going to be real strict with it, tongues and interpretation, if they're true, are probably almost always prophecy, either in the present or the future. Because what is the purpose of tongues and interpretation? It's for God to say something very directly to the church. Not just say something through the scripture in the sense that we open the Bible and explain a passage. But for God to speak on an issue and say it right now. That's the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Christ is the spirit of prophecy. So when the Lord wants to speak to the church and he wants to testify... I don't mean testify in the sense we're telling how our day went or some answer to prayer, but when he wants to testify to his will in the church or testify what he's doing in the church, the spirit of prophecy may come on somebody. So there's a little bit of a distinction sometimes, Sister Ellen. If you're going to use those words really strictly, a prophet might have a wider role than a seer. A seer is more of a focused role, just of seeing forward. A prophet might have a live anointing in terms of right at that moment, as well as an anointing about something in the future. Well, might hold a hold higher position. I would say a prophet would hold a higher position if there is intended to be a biblical distinction between those two words. If there's really intended to be a distinction. An example would be talking about the seers being covered. Now what do you mean by that? He meant they're not going to see. And you know what the problem with that is? It isn't just seeing truth. It's seeing what God wants for his people. That's a pretty dangerous place to be when you don't have any seers. You don't have anybody that can tell you this is what God wants. I don't mean right now he's going to tell you what house to buy or something like that. I'm talking about what God wants from the church right now or what God expects us to do in response to the conditions of the world right now. We need seers. We need people that can see into that realm where God is at and see forward in terms of God giving them an insight. We talked about this just one of our last few services, talking about the sons of Issachar who had a knowledge of the times. Now, would you include them among the seers? I don't know if I would necessarily go that far with it, but they had a knowledge of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Either that was extremely practical knowledge, just that they were so skilled in their diplomatic knowledge of the conditions of the world around them. They had a good gauge on what Israel needed to do in terms of its relationships, the other nations and things, or it was a spiritual knowledge that they had an understanding of what God wanted Israel to do, which would have been synonymous if it was God-inspired in their minds. When he says, Who is as blind as my servant? Is that kind of along these lines? Well, you're very close to one of the passages that uses this kind of language when you're quoting that, but we have usually applied that to Jesus. It says, Who's blind as my servant or deaf as my messenger that I sent? In that passage, if we're interpreting it right and if we're translating it right, it says, Who is blind as he that is perfect? Well, if we're interpreting that right, if we're translating it right, it could be a messianic reference to Christ. Now you say, well, how was he blind? He was blind to anything but God's will. He put his spiritual blinders on and focused in on what God wanted, and he was deaf to any distraction. He was blind to any distraction from his purpose. There's another place in that chapter, though, and in the chapter surrounding it, where it talks about Israel being blind, and it seems to be almost the opposite of what is described in that passage. And it seems to be a different situation. It seems to be the other type of blindness. And here's how I would make a distinction. You can be blind to the world where your eyes are fixed on Christ, your eyes are fixed on God, or you can be blind to God and your eyes are fixed on the world. And you will, to the extent you focus on one, you'll become slowly blind to the other. Slowly. It's usually not instantaneously. But to the extent that you start looking at the world and getting entranced by the world... You'll slowly start to lose your spiritual vision, which you were talking to me about right before here, Brother Chapel. You'll slowly start to lose your spiritual vision. It usually doesn't happen in one fell swoop that you suddenly have been made blind. There's a measure of blindness that occurs as soon as you leave your covering. You'll quickly go blind if you stay out from under the covering of God. And sometimes people progressively go blind. They just keep going in and out, see? And you think, well, that's not going to hurt you. You can spiritually slowly lose your vision if you're always just going in and out. I'm out in the dark, spiritually speaking, then I come into the church, then I leave the church, then I'm in the church. You will slowly lose your spiritual vision. Now, you just dramatically leave the church and never come back, you might have a lot quicker loss of your spiritual vision. So there are people that are blind in the sense that they're blind to the world, and there's people that are blind in the sense that they're blind to God. And you can't be both. You're going to be blind to one or the other. The more blind you become to the world, the more God will come alive to you. And the more blind you become to God, the more the world will fill your vision. Darkness starts to take over the light you have mm-hmm. in that sense. Mm-hmm. The one who used this terminology more than any of the other gospel writers, John. First chapter of John, he starts right off. It's one of the very first descriptive terms he used for Jesus is the fact that he was the light. Only well, what sense was he the light? Did you get around him and you, you didn't have to have a torch if it was nighttime? Of course not. And then he had spiritual insight. He had spiritual illumination. And when he came, he could open people's eyes to the truth. He could shine the light of truth on an individual and they could be enlightened themselves. They could have the light that is Christ. And by having that, that means they would have an understanding of things they hadn't had before. That's all light represents in the Bible. It represents understanding, it represents knowledge of something. We've been talking about this some lately in terms of different truths. When we talk about there being a sevenfold light, seven means perfect or complete. Light means understanding or knowledge. So let's put them together. That means there's going to come a time when the knowledge and understanding of God is perfect. Every bit of knowledge we need and understanding we need for whatever the conditions are, we'll have it. Now, the sevenfold light is something that's applied down through the millennial reign, meaning that it's going to be light enough not just to bring people onto perfection, it's going to be light enough to bring this world back into the place that it needs to be. You'll have light enough to do everything God expected out of the creation. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? That's what sevenfold light is. That's when the lights shine seven times brighter just means, again, the number seven is very commonly interpreted throughout the Bible. And almost any Bible scholar would agree with this. This isn't something that's very controversial at all. Seven almost always represents something that represents a completeness or represents a perfect state of some kind. That's why man's number six, by the way. It's less than perfect. Man is less than perfect. Man is flawed. So he's less than seven. Being afflicted does bring growth and depth of understanding. Mm -hmm. Being afflicted, if you learn from the affliction, will bring a greater understanding. Affliction is something that can teach you a lot if you learn from it. Sometimes the only thing people learn from affliction is bitterness or anger. Some kind of animosity is created by the affliction, but... If you learn from the affliction, if the affliction is an educational experience, and it can be, any affliction can be educational. If you can realize the value of affliction, whatever conditions you're under can have value in producing something in your life if you take them right and if you learn the lesson. The only problem is I don't have the answer to how you can learn that lesson. So people will say, well, how do I learn the lesson? Well, I don't always have the answer to that. That's one of the things we need more light from God. God could just give you some spiritual discernment to understand why somebody is going through such a suffering way. And maybe you could look at them and say, This is what God's trying to produce in you. Now, here is one of the reasons why that is not something that happens often, because a lot of times if people know what God's trying to produce in them, it won't have the effect God wants to have. Imagine if the whole thing God was trying to produce in you was humility. He was trying to get rid of your arrogance and pride. You know what you'd do real quick? Put on some false humility. (laughs) You'd real quick try to develop some kind of humility, it wouldn't be real at all. If that's what God's trying to teach me, let me get out of this mess as quick as I can. Let me just lower myself in all environments. Let me really get down low and really humble myself. And you wouldn't be learning the lesson. That lesson has to be real. It can't be something that is just enforced. You cannot create humility through force of will. It has to be something that is changed in your spirit that makes you realize, I am not as big as I would like to be or is that I think I am, first you learn you're not as big as you think you are. Then the next step in your educational process is you learn you're not as big as you'd like to be. You better find out you're not as big as you thought you were first because you'll never come to the conclusion you're not as big as you'd like to be unless you do. So that's an example. Humility is one of those things that it'd be very hard to learn if you knew that's what God was trying to teach you. And sometimes the things God has to teach us are not things that he's going to explain. There's the other side. There's more to it than just the complicated nature of maybe you not learning the lesson right there's also the fact that God wants you to be able to trust him no matter what kind of pressure you're under no matter what kind of conditions that you face in terms of affliction brother Ron that you brought up here whatever conditions you might have to face and whatever pressures you might have to go under God wants to know are you going to endure that even if I don't explain myself to you even if I don't make it clear to you why you're going through this difficult passage are you still going to be faithful to me It'd be easier. Don't you think it'd be easier if an angel Lord appeared to you and said, Now, the reason that you're under this strain that you're under, the reason you're going through what you're going through, is God is going to make a great man out of you. He's going to make a great woman out of you. He's going to do something incredible in your life. And don't worry about it. Now, once in a while, God may give that kind of insight. But most of the time, He does not. He does want a people that will trust Him no matter what He does in them or with them or through them or to them, for that matter. And he doesn't want to have to explain himself. He wants to see, are you going to trust him? He will explain himself at times, but he wants to see, are you going to entrust yourself to him, even though you cannot understand why he's doing to you what he's doing? You know who one of the best examples in the entire Bible is of that? I know what you'll think of right away. There's one that automatically comes to mind. It's almost cliche, isn't it? Job. Job. But there's another name that starts with a J-O in the Bible that is a tremendous example as well. Well, Joshua, Joshua went through some things, didn't he? Right, let's go back in time a little bit, though, to Joseph. Joseph was a beautiful example of it. There's no point at which God appeared to explain to Joseph, listen, Joseph, here's why you just got thrown down in a pit by your brothers. Here's why. Don't worry about it. Just hang out here for a little while. It's all going to turn out for the good. Then when they sold him, of all people, his own blood kin sold him into slavery. No voice came out of heaven and said, don't worry, Joseph, I'm sending you down there for a good purpose. Just tough it out. No communication. Then he gets sold into a household where, of course, he's tempted with adultery by the woman of the house. And there was no voice that's recorded that said to Joseph, Joseph, if you just resist this temptation, you're going to be one of the greatest, most powerful men in Egypt one of these days. Don't you think that would have helped him resist it? I want you to think about this for a minute. Wouldn't it have helped you resist it? It shouldn't take this. Now listen close to me. I'm putting this in light terms, but it shouldn't take this. Don't you think it would help you resist if right when you were under that kind of barrage of temptation and you're a young man and this probably was an attractive woman and you're under this barrage of temptation, don't you think it would have helped if an angel would have whispered to you, just resist the temptation, Joseph, and you'll be the second most powerful man in Egypt in a few years. God didn't tell him that. God wanted him to have character even if there was no reward. That was part of the process Joseph had to go through is that he wanted to know, will this man have character without getting rewarded for that character? That's the kind of people God wants, saints. So I tell you, we have to be careful what our motives are because if our motives are some reward, God's gonna have to take us through some difficult places till we finally get to the point where we just want God, whatever the reward might be or lack thereof. This day that we're living in right now is full of individuals who at the very least appear to be serving God for reward. They focus in on the gifts that they might get, or they focus in on the riches that might come with faith, the health and wealth message, or the health that I'll have if I just will serve God. That is not what the journey is about. It's not about material riches or physical health. It's about serving God, even if you never get either one of those two things. And Joseph in his situation had no outlook in front of him that told him, you are going to one of these days be one of the most powerful men on the face of the earth if you just hold on. God didn't give him any insight into the great role he had set up for him. Now, God had given Joseph a dream that if he had understood it and if it had remained in his memories throughout the time that he went through, all the difficulties that he went through, certainly might have given him some hope about the potential of the future blessing God was going to put on him. But none of the events of that dream appeared through Joseph's life to have come about in any way. And I'm sure Joseph didn't understand what the significance of that dream was in terms of the span of his lifetime. And then after that, of course, after he stood on his integrity and got put in prison for several years, hopes dashed again and again, and his expectation of deliverance dashed, no record that God appeared to him or sent an angel to him and said, Joseph, just hold on, tough it out. You're going to be a great man one of these days. All Joseph knew is that everything in his life had, from one stage to another, gotten progressively worse from his perspective. From his perspective, his life had just continued to get progressively worse. You know what you might do in a situation like that? You might start to say, maybe I'm serving the wrong God. Look, I was faithful to God. I told everybody my dream. Might not have been the wisest thing to do, but I told everybody the dream you gave me, Lord. They threw me in a pit and sold me into slavery. I got down here into Egypt after I was a slave, and everything I did for my master was at a high level of excellence. It was. Everything Joseph touched was blessed. It was a high level of excellence and faithfulness. And here my master's wife even propositioned me and I refused that. And in spite of all that integrity, here I am in a prison cell. Maybe I'm serving the wrong God because God hasn't showed up on my behalf in any of these things I've had to deal with. And years have passed. And every time I face another problem, God's nowhere to be found. And I stand for God. And my life becomes even worse than it was before that. That enough when your family hates you. Then they sell you into slavery. Then in the slavery you're in, you get put in a situation where you lose all of any position you had there, and now you're in a prison cell, and then you're in a prison cell without any hope. Joseph didn't know what his destination was God was taking him toward, but this is such an incredible statement of his character that Joseph held his character. Even though everything that happened to him seemed to progressively get worse and worse in terms of his life, he did not bend on his character. He held his character. And I'll tell you what, without knowing what the reward was, he became one of the most powerful men on the face of the earth because he held his character. But God didn't tell him ahead of time. Moses is the same, you know. God didn't tell Moses what his role was going to be. There's no record whatsoever in his first 40 years of life that Moses had any insight. There's no record whatsoever in his next 40 years of life until the burning bush that Moses had any insight, that God's going to use me as a great... Now, his mom might have said that I feel like God's got something for you. You're a special child. I'm sure, you know, everybody can say Mama will tell him that, you know, or daddy. But he didn't seem to have any insight from God of any greatness that he was going to have. And he was one of the greatest men in terms of the whole history of Israel. In terms of his power and his influence, and his influence is still echoing down through time. Those were men that served God without the potential of reward. Particularly Joseph is an example of that. And that is part of the lesson God wants us to learn is that we may want to know, why are you taking me through this, Lord? What's the value of this? And I don't know if I can hold myself. You better just hold yourself and realize that there is something on the other side of this. It may not be what you're dreaming about. It may not be what you're hoping it might be. It might be greater than what you're hoping. It might be greater than what you're hoping. In fact, God, often, if you truly are faithful in spite of any potential for a lack of reward, Quite often, God will give you more than you ever expected. You might have thought, in my wildest imaginations, this is what I was hoping God would do with my life. And you find out I held my integrity and looked like he was never going to do it, but when he did it, my God in heaven, it was so much greater than I ever would have thought. And gave Job more in than what he had Everything Job had was doubled. And even his children were doubled. Now, is that true or false? Did he have the same amount of children that he had had before? Or did he have twice as many children after it was all done? Now, I'm saying that intentionally as a trick question. He didn't get his children back that were killed. But you know God had doubled everything else. And you know how God was going to double the rest? One of these days, he was going to see him in the resurrection. He would not get to see all of his children. Twice as many as he had to begin with. Mm-hmm. You don't think God is very precise in what he does. I always use that example. It's one of my favorite. Brother Queen brought it up here the other night. He just threw it in a long list of controversial topics. I don't know if he was trying to get me to address all those topics or he was just bringing up controversial topics, but I never addressed it to him. He just went through them real quick, rapid fire. This wasn't one. It was related to Elijah. One of them was the fact that Elisha's bones were lying in that grave. And that man that was cast into that grave when his friends were on the run saw some bandits coming and threw his body into that grave so they could make a run for it not have to carry him in that shape. <laughs> they weren't going to get him out of there. him in a grave and let's get out of here. Little did they know when his body fell in that grave and touched the bones of Elisha, his body was brought back to life. And it's one of the most beautiful examples of how perfect God's precision is. Because Elisha asked for a double portion. And if you study the miraculous things Elisha did, they are almost perfectly double in terms of their effectiveness and number of things and other things of what his forebear Elijah had done. But one thing he did not double Elijah on was raising the dead. Elijah raised the dead individual. And he raised the dead individual in his life. And he had asked for a double portion. If you want to be real strict about it, you might say one part of that double portion wasn't true because he didn't raise two people from the dead. But we serve a God whose faithfulness goes past our lifetimes. And he raised somebody from the dead off of Elisha's bones. Elisha didn't even have to be alive for that promise to come about. So Elisha was responsible for two resurrections, even though he wasn't even alive when one of them happened. Isn't that something? You want to talk about a God that is very precise in his promises. He keeps his promises, saints. And he's very precise in terms of the promises that he makes.